Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 42. It's a, it's a longer passage. Uh, but these verses give us an entire conversation that takes place between Jesus and the Jewish leaders at the temple. And it's just so important because uh, we need that context. We need to know uh, what's going on before the parable to really understand the, the purpose of it and where Jesus is trying to get at in terms of the hearts of these leaders and what he's trying to communicate. And so uh, let's turn there, Matthew chapter 21, verses four, 23 to 42, and may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son but when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and have his inheritance and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants they said to him he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Amen. The word of the Lord word of the Lord. This passage is about authority. This passage is about authority. That's what the Jewish leaders ask Jesus about. By what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? And before we get into the passage, I just want to ask you, when you think about authority, what thoughts and feelings come to mind? 
Just that word, it, 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 seems, it, it, it can seem and feel pretty cold and strong and harsh. And so when you think about authority, what emotions, what feelings, what thoughts come to mind? Are they positive or are they negative? We've all heard that phrase that power corrupts and then absolute power corrupts absolutely. So a lot of times we do have this negative view towards authority as if somebody's making us do something that we don't want to do. Especially in this country when we think of authority, our, our, our revolutionary cry or one of them was don't tread on me, right? That's, that's an American like revolution cry, don't tread on me. When it comes to authority, some of us think of church leaders and we think negatively of how we knew some church leaders who were acting like dictators or, or, or they wanted to be treated like celebrities with so much entitlement and that just left a bad taste in our mouths because we feel like the Bible or we know that the Bible commands leaders in the church to be shepherds, to be tender, to be loving, to be gracious, to be like Jesus. We might think of bosses or instructors uh, that we've experienced at work or, or in school. And we think, man, when they had authority over us, they were so domineering. They were so verbally abusive. They were so difficult to be under. And that could have been a negative experience. Others of us may just painfully remember our own parents. Our own parents who were controlling. Our own parents who were heavy-handed. And they were the first authority figures in our lives. And yet we have many negative uh, memories of their authority over us. And many given our, our current climate, and many of you may be thinking about our government when it comes to authority. And man, those feelings and thoughts are complicated. It is so complicated to think about our government right now and our law enforcement and, and work out uh, our hearts, they may be full of cynicism, anger, frustration, and grief because we feel like the, the, the sword and scales of justice have been abused. And that's how many may be feeling. But we also know that anarchy is not the solution. Anarchy is not the solution. To do away with everything to bring down all of the systems and all of the structures of society, of family, and in the church, that that is not going to work, that that is not going to be good. To have no authority is not the solution. We need effective policing. We need the justice system. We need good laws. We need good leaders. We need good parenting. We need good family dynamics. And so... This is why simultaneously in our country, right now, we are seeing a protest about authority and at the same time an appeal to authority. Okay? When people are protesting, they are protesting specific issues about an abuse of power from policing, from justice being denied or justice being delayed. And there are specific protests about authority that are being made, but they're also protesting and appealing to authority. They want the district attorneys. They want the judges. They want our officers and the chief of police and our governors and our leaders to do something and to enact change. And so that's a very interesting dynamic. Authority is inescapable. 
It is absolutely inescapable. It permeates every sphere of our lives, family, church, government. And the reason why authority is inescapable is because God created us this way. This this is how God has constructed and designed life for us. If you read the Bible, you'll see that authority is mandated from the very beginning of creation. Adam was called to have headship over Eve. Humanity was called to fill the earth and multiply and have dominion over creation. Parents were called to have authority over their children. Elders were called to shepherd the flock and have authority over the members of the church. And the government was given the sword. The government was called to have authority over its subjects, over its citizens. But here's the thing about authority. Here's the thing about authority. All authority on earth was designed to be a reflection of God's authority over us. So when God mandated that Adam and Eve, Adam would have headship over Eve, parents over children, humanity over creation, the government over our citizens, God designed it and he willed it so that this authority, those structures and relationships of authority would be a reflection of his ruling, his authority over us. And so it was supposed to be good and protective and life-giving and leading to flourishing. And when we understand that that is what's going on, that that is the direction and the design of authority, then we understand that the Christian worldview is uniquely able to provide both protest to unjust authority and a compelling vision for what it should look like. When we understand the biblical dynamics, the biblical structures, the biblical will of God in authority, we can protest unjust, inappropriate authority in our world, in our cities, in our community, And then we can constructively cast a vision and pursue what authority is supposed to look like, what it's going to be. Right now, as I'm scouring the internet, I know that there are so many questions. People are protesting, they're angry, they're hurt, they're frustrated, but nobody is sure what exactly is going to happen next. There's a lot of demands being made, but we aren't sure. How are we going to build a just and equitable society for all people in this country? It's a very difficult, complicated question. I do believe that the Christian worldview uniquely provides a beautiful and compelling answer to this. Without a biblical worldview of that truth, man, all we have is might makes right. All we have is the consensus of the majority, the power and the voice of the majority. But I, for one, believe that the voice and the authority of God is the best place for all of humanity, for all of creation, for all people to live under. Not just the powerful, not just the influential, not just the masses and the crowds because it's easy for everyone to be wrong some of the time. So today we're going to look at authority and the authority of Jesus And he's going to show us through a parable where his authority comes from and what it looks like.
Okay, where does the authority of Jesus come from and what does it look like? And as we unpack this passage, I want to consider four things. Okay, there's four points, so watch out for the curveball. Authority challenged, authority honored, authority rejected, and authority exercised. Okay, so authority challenged, honored, rejected, and exercised. Let's begin with the challenge of authority. Mark chapter 21. Uh, it's an important chapter in the go- or sorry Matthew chapter 21. It's an important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew because it is the beginning of Passion Week. Okay, Mark chapter one marks the or 20, Matthew chapter 21 marks the beginning of Passion Week, and Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to cries of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Our young folks would call that clout. Jesus entered into Jerusalem with clout. And he's already entered into the temple. And he's in righteous indignation as he sees the money changers turning God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so he's already made a scene. He's already cast out these money changers, these these greedy salespeople from the temple of God. He's cleansed it. And the next day he returns to the temple and he begins to teach. And as the Jewish leaders see him teaching, they approach him. And these are the chief priests of the temple and the elders of Israel. And they confront him and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? In other words, they were challenging him. They were asking Jesus, who died and made you king? Jesus, who said you can do all of these things? Jesus, who do you think that you are? And Jesus responds with a question of his own. And he says, if they answer him, he'll answer them. Okay, he'll answer them. But Jesus asks a doozy of a question. So I just use clout and doozy in one. That's multi-generational language. Um, A doozy of a question. He asks, the baptism of John, was that from heaven Or was that from man? Simple question. And the scene is pretty funny. These chief priests and these elders, they get together, they huddle up, they do a little sidebar, kind of like in that game show, Family Feud, when the family all gets together and they try to figure out what the best answer is and they go, boom, final answer. And in the midst of their debating and discussing, they realize this is a catch-22. If they say John's baptism came from heaven, then they're in trouble with God because they didn't become followers of John. They didn't repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. They are in trouble with God. But if they say that John's baptism was from man, they're going to be in trouble with the crowd because so many people in Israel, they regarded John as a prophet. They went out into the wilderness and they received his baptism. They sat under his teaching and they were expecting the Messiah to come. Catch 22. So they answer, we don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm not going to tell you. But here's the thing he actually does. He just hides the answer within two parables. He hides the answer within his parables to draw out whether or not they have faith or not. Here's another thing about authority. It's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game. Um, 
who's going to sit on the throne? It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be them. Who's going to have authority in the temple, authority over God's people as the teacher, as the preacher, as the messenger? It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be these Jewish leaders. They understand the dynamic of authority. Can't everybody make all the decisions together? And so they're threatened. Jesus has already called them out. They were allowing the money changers to do their business in the temple and Jesus did not allow them. Jesus rejected that practice. They were teaching the word of God to his people on the Torah and Jesus says, you guys are doing it wrong. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, Jesus was claiming a greater teaching authority than the leaders of Israel. He challenged their authority, so they challenged his. And if we're honest, we experience this tension as well. We all have temptations to live under our authority, to make our own decisions for our lives, for our relationships, for our careers, for everything. And authority feels good at times, doesn't it? It feels good when people do what you say. If we're honest, we we like that. We like when people do what we say. Parents, we uh, opened up the chat box in YouTube. And so uh, I would love for you at this time to give me an amen if you love it when, when your kids do what you say. When they don't debate, when they don't drag their feet, when they, ar- when they don't argue, when they, when they don't question you. When you say, eat your vegetables, and they say, okay. When they say, go to sleep, and they just go to sleep. And, and that feels so good. When you say, stop fighting with your sibling, share, and they just do it. It feels so good when your kids obey you. But you want to see a salty parent? Do you want to offend a parent? Tell them that they're parenting wrong. Tell them that what they're doing, their method, their practices are wrong hurt feelings. It's been a while since we uh, transitioned our son, Seth, to uh, solid foods, to solid foods. And sometimes he, he eats like a champ, right? He'll just put the, the rice and, and the vegetables and things like that in his mouth, and it's awesome. It makes Alice so happy. It makes me so happy when he's eating. But other times, he takes things, and he looks at it, and he just throws it on the ground. He just chucks and throws the food everywhere. I try to catch it in midair, but, um, you know, a lot gets past me. And then that's, those are the days when our dog, Piper, she eats like a champ. Right? She's, the, she's a great cleanup crew. And uh, as Alice was telling her mom this, yeah, there's some days uh, and some foods that, that Seth eats really well and other days when he just won't eat and he just throws all of the food. Alice's mom just said, it's because you don't make it taste good. You don't make it taste good. And it was just such a dagger to her heart. Such a dagger to her heart. And so now every time when Seth doesn't eat his food well, Alice just says under her breath, my mom would say that it's because I didn't make it taste good. Those salty words. And then we just smile at each other because it's a joke. And Alice is a fantastic cook. Um, Brothers and sisters, in grace and truth, Jesus speaks to us and he confronts us and he challenges our authority. He asks us questions regarding how we are loving our neighbor or whether we are not. He challenges our authority and exposes our sin by the way that we are treating our enemies because a kingdom citizen of God will turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile and oftentimes, almost every time, 
we're unwilling to do that. He'll call us out on whether we are serving the poor and caring for them or whether we are neglecting the poor and the oppressed. He'll question the way that we spend our money. He'll question our priorities, whether we are seeking first the kingdom of God or whether we're seeking to build our own kingdom. He especially challenges the way we use religion, how we pray, how we fast, how we read the Bible. And we've all heard the correcting and challenging words of Jesus in our lives. And Jesus knows that for most of us, we are unwilling and too afraid to have a full-on confrontation with him. We're not going to call him out and challenge him like these Jewish leaders did. We're not going to flat out disagree with God and the Bible. We're going to take the passive aggressive approach, right? We're going to nod, we're going to listen, and then we're going to do our own thing. We're going to go in the opposite direction when we feel the tension between Jesus's authority and ours. And so that's why Jesus gives us a parable. The first parable that we read on what real obedience looks like, what it means to honor authority. And in this parable, We have a father and his two sons. It's just really simple. To the first son, he says, go work in the vineyard. And the son says, no. And then later changes his mind and goes to work in the vineyard. And then the second son, he says the same thing, go work in the vineyard. And the second son says, yes, but doesn't go. And then Jesus asks the Jewish leaders, which one did the will of the father? The answer is easy. The first, the first. And then Jesus lays down a devastating judgment upon these men. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Before an elder in Israel. Before a chief priest in the temple. Jesus, is that what you are saying? And Jesus is saying, yes. The tax collectors the prostitutes and the sinners. They are the ones who started off saying no to God. They are the ones who started off in disobedience and in rebellion and under their own authority. But when John the Baptist came preaching the message of repentance for the kingdom of God being at hand, they are the, one who's, they are the ones who heard. They are the ones who received that prophetic message. They are the ones who repented and they turned. And the Jewish leaders in the temple, they did not. And Jesus lays judgments upon them. And I'm afraid that there are many of us who are guilty of the same sin, who say yes to God, who know all of the appropriate answers about the gospel, about the church, about how we are supposed to live. We say yes, yes, and yes, and yet we rarely obey. We rarely obey. Regarding this parable, one pastor that I love and respect, he he says this, it is not where you are, it's not where you are or where you start that defines you. It's where you finish. It's not where you are right now that matters, it's where you go. It's not where you start that matters, it's where you finish. It's not where you are right now, but where you go. That's what matters when it comes to our relationship with God and his authority, God and his direction and his command in our lives. 
Friends, there are many of us who feel far from, far from God today. We may feel like failures. We may feel like hypocrites. We may feel like outcasts. But brothers and sisters, I want you to remember that is why Jesus came. Christ came to seek and save the lost. He came to meet you where you are. And he died for you as you are. And his purpose now is to lead you to where he is, to make you a follower of Jesus, to make you like him, holy, righteous, and good. That's what Jesus is doing in your lives. That's what he wants to do. And so you may not have been living a life that honors the authority of Jesus. Maybe today, right now, you, you, you realize that, man, you have been living according to your own ways, your own plans, your own priorities. But you can start today. You can be in disobedience. And what matters most is that you turn now. You turn today towards Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that you would. Jesus then tells a second parable which really gets to the heart of the matter. It's an allegorical parable where each character and element represents something very specific. In the parable of the wicked tenants, God is the owner of the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants are the prophets of God. And then Jesus, most obviously, is the son. Okay? And so in this parable, the second parable, each character and each element represents something very important um, in relation to Jesus, God, the prophets, Israel, and the religious leaders. And you know what happens in the story. It's a parable of rejection and judgment. There's a landowner who purchased a vineyard and he, he prepared the vineyard to be a good place to bear fruit. But the landowner makes an agreement with tenants. Tenants to farm the land. And then when the harvest come, the owner and the tenants, they would agree on some kind of breakdown to uh, divvy up the harvest. And so they came into a contractual agreement. They made a covenant with one another. And so the harvest came. And the landowner, who is in a very far off country, sends his servants to collect his portion, what is rightly his due. But these wicked, wicked tenant farmers, they break the contract. They break the agreement. They break the covenant. And instead, they beat, kill, and stone these servants. The landowner hears about it. He sends another. He sends another group of servants, this time even more. And the tenant farmers, they do the exact same thing. They beat, kill, and stone the owner's servants. Finally, the owner says, they will respect my son. In Luke's account, Luke chapter 20, Luke adds, whom I love. They will respect my son, whom I love. You can sense the father's heart. You can even sense a little bit of, of desperation that this is his last ditch effort to get the fruit of the harvest, to get what belongs to him from the vineyard, that is his people, that's Israel. 
But when the wicked tenants see the sun, they conspire. That is the air. That's the air of everything. And so if we kill him, we can keep the inheritance for ourselves. We can keep the land. This vineyard will be ours. And so they kill the son. And then Jesus pauses and he asks the religious leaders, as you've been listening to the story, what should the owner do? If you were the owner, what would you do? What is just and what is appropriate? And then they answer and they answer that the wicked tenants should be brought to justice. They should be killed. And the owner should bring in new tenants who will farm the land, who will keep their agreement and give the owner the harvest, the fruit that he rightly deserves. Now I want you to think about these questions not as a trap that Jesus is setting for these priests and elders but rather these questions these questions draw us in to the heart and mind of God when is the last time you try to see things from God's perspective because I think we're used to being where we are in our perspective and experience and we're like God do something God respond, God save, God speak, God work. But when's the last time you just tried to pause and put yourself in God's shoes and empathize with him? That's what these questions, right? That's what these questions do. Jesus wants us to consider what is God supposed to do when his people keep breaking the covenant? What is God supposed to do When the leaders of Israel keep killing servant after servant, prophet after prophet, what is God supposed to do? Elijah, the great prophet, he was exiled. Zechariah was stoned. Isaiah, the prophet of prophets in the Old Testament, Jewish church history tells us that, or Jewish synagogue history tells us that he was sawed in two. He was sawed in two. We know what happens to John the Baptist. He is beheaded. He's beheaded. What is God supposed to do? When his people have rejected him over and over again, what is God supposed to do with us? What's he supposed to do with us? And here we see the heart and the patience and the sacrificial love of God. A God who loves his people, the vineyard, with such a relentless love that he not only sent prophet after prophet to his people, he sent his only begotten son, whom he loved. He did not spare his son, and instead he sent him to the cross for our sins. He sent him to the cross knowing that that would be the only way he would be able to redeem his people. The parable ends and it seems like the father has lost. Okay? It seems like the father has lost. He has lost control of his vineyard. He's lost control of countless servants. He's lost his own beloved son. But the verse, but Jesus closes with the meaning of the parable and the exercise of authority. Let's read those verses one last time. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you 
and be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's an, there's an old Hebrew saying that um, if a rock falls on a pot, bad for the pot. And if a pot falls on a rock, bad for the pot. And that's what Jesus is saying about the cornerstone and anyone who falls on it or anyone who comes under it. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 and he's reminding us that he is the cornerstone of God's kingdom. And if you don't know what a cornerstone is, it unites two walls. Okay, so you take two walls together and that first stone, that foundational stone brings them together. And this is a foreshadowing. Jesus as the cornerstone of two walls is a foreshadowing of God uniting Jew and Gentile in his family. God uniting Jew and Gentile in his, vi- in his vineyard. Jew and Gentile in the church. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is talking about and how through Jesus there will be a great ministry of reconciliation where there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if ever there was a time when we needed Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives, it is today. Let me say this. I'm about to talk about race. I'm going to talk about race. And it's not because it's political. I'm not being political. I'm being biblical. I'm going to talk about race because that is where Jesus has led us in this parable, where God has led us in his word. And if you tune out now, and if you shut down now, because now you think I'm just being political and controversial or progressive or left-wing, right-wing, you are refusing to listen to the counsel of God. Every white, Asian, black, and Latino, we are Gentiles. We are Gentiles. And there were Jewish leaders in Jesus' day who refused to accept the idea that people like us could ever be part of the family of God. And even if we tried, even if we was categorized as God-fearers, Gentiles who believed in Yahweh and wanted to participate in the life of Israel, even if we became God-fearers and tried to uphold every aspect of the Jewish law and assimilated ourselves physically, relationally, spiritually, culturally to the Torah, even if we did all that we could to be like a Jew, we would never be a Jew. We would never be fully accepted and fully acknowledged. And so when we went to the temple, we would not be able to enter into the deeper, more powerful, joyful, intimate places of worship. We would be outside in a place called the court of the Gentiles. And for us, that would be as good as it gets. We would be second class. We would not be fully accepted. Every single one of us. But Jesus Christ changes everything. He changes everything. And because he is the great cornerstone who by his authority and by his blood reconciles us, that reconciliation goes in two directions between us and God and us and one another in relationships. 
So now Gentiles can be reconciled to God, fully accepted as his sons and daughters. And then Gentiles can be reconciled to the Jews together as equal members of God's household and God's family. And all of that comes from the fact that Jesus is our cornerstone. He is the greatest reconciler of races the greatest reconciler of peoples, people groups, and nations. Beloved church of God, do not think that the distinction between Jew and Gentile is an easy, casual, and skinny one. It is just as great, if not greater, than the racial divide that we have seen in our country between white and black. It is that serious, that heavy, that staunch and in our country we have a heinous a terrible history of slavery segregation and racism it's decimated and oppressed black communities for hundreds and hundreds of years and there are too many christians in our churches who are afraid to talk about race we don't want to hear about it We don't want to talk about it. We definitely don't want our pastors and preachers discussing it. And specifically, white evangelical Protestants, they do not like to talk about race relations in the church. But we need to acknowledge that it's often the white evangelical Protestants who have been the most active in segregating the church and segregating our communities and segregating this country. I'm not saying that all whites are guilty of this, okay? I'm not saying that. Certainly, there have been many courageous white advocates for blacks in this country. But we as Christians here in America, we as members of the body of Christ need to recognize what our spiritual family has done, whether you are Asian or white, what the spiritual legacy of evangelical Protestant Christianity has done to the black community here in America. We need to confess and acknowledge our present and our past failures. My Christian high school that I attended in Atlanta, Georgia, it was founded in the 1950s. And countless other Christian high schools in the South were founded in the 1950s and in the 60s. And do you know why? Do you know why there's such a birth of new Christian private schools in the South during that time? It's because of Brown versus the Board of Education. The Supreme Court decision that desegregated our education system. And so Christian white parents did not want their kids going to school with black children. And so if they lost in the courts if they lost or because they lost in the court of law, they privatized education. They privatized education. Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University is an evangelical fundamentalist school in South Carolina. And I remember driving by it uh, a long time ago and and my uncle, he just pointed to, to Bob Jones and he said, did you know that that was the last school in America to integrate. The last school in America to accept black students as university students. A Christian, evangelical, fundamentalist school. 
held out till 1971. 1971, they refused. Until 1971, they refused to accept black students. Billy Graham attended Bob Jones for one semester and he realized that there was a toxic culture there and he left. Thank God for that. And upon doing more research about Bob Jones University, I was shocked to learn that until the year 2000, okay, until the year 2000, the school prohibited interracial dating. I am not making this up. They prohibited interracial marriage. In 1998, a spokesman from the school, okay, his name was Jonathan Pate, he doubled down on this decision. And he made the statement, the words are going to go up on the screen, and I ask that you would read them and read them carefully and read them deeply. This is what he said. God has separated people for his own purposes. He has erected barriers between the nations, not only land and sea barriers, but also ethnic, cultural, and language barriers. God has made people different from one another and intends those differences to remain. Bob Jones University is opposed to intermarriage of the races because it breaks down the barriers God has established. 1998, they held on. Only in 2000 did they change their position. Alumni from Bob Jones have gone on to be congressmen. They've gone on to be civic leaders. They've gone on to be seminary professors, even seminary presidents, Christian university presidents have come from Bob Jones University. An untold number of pastors have come from Bob Jones University. And this was the kind of poison that they drank during their formative collegiate years. Thank God Billy Graham left that school. So when the black community cries out that they are victims of systemic racism, okay, that racism in this country, it's not just an individual act of prejudice. It's not just one person acting out in bigotry and in hatred and in sin. But when the black community says that they are victims of systemic racism, and oppression, how dare we turn a deaf ear? How dare we turn a deaf ear? How dare we play games of semantics? Because I've heard and read the arguments against systemic oppression and it's semantical games. How dare we go there when we know in our hearts what is really going on? what is really wounding and hurting and oppressing blacks in this country. Now let me get to us as a predominantly Asian American community. One of my uncles uh, attended the University of Alabama in the 1960s. And I remember him telling me the story over dinner several years ago. And the University of Alabama had uh, desegre- or had integrated, but had not fully desegregated its practices. And so my uncle and another Korean 
were uh, two of the first international students to attend the University of Alabama, Huntsville. Okay. Um, or at least Korean international students. And he told me that the first day they got on the bus, the bus driver looked at both of them and he was so confused. He had never seen an Asian. He didn't know what to do with Koreans. And so he looked at my uncle and he said, you, you sit with the white kids up front. And then he looked at the other Korean and he said, you sit with the blacks in the back of the bus. And I wish he was just kind of going 50-50. Like, I don't know what, what's going on. So I'm just going to send one to the front, one to the back and make sure everything's okay. But my uncle specifically told me, it's because I had light skin. I was a Korean from the city. And my friend was one of those dark-skinned Koreans from the countryside. And that was the distinction. Same ethnicity, same nationality, same experience and context as Korean international students. And yet they were segregated because of the color of their skin. And that was the first time my uncle tasted white privilege. And my uncle knew that if he was going to succeed in this country in the 1960s as an international Korean student, he was going to have to keep that white privilege. And he lived his life and raised his children, never forgetting that reality. Friends, how many of us have lived our lives chasing and preserving privilege rather than rejecting it, critiquing it, and giving it away for the sake of others. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us what to do with privilege. And I just want to share that I'm in process, trying to work this out in my own heart, in my family, and in my life. It's very difficult, and so I am not trying to come down on you in a self-righteous manner. I'm just sharing as a sinner, trying to work out the the authority and the life of Jesus in my own life. But the gospel tells us what to do with privilege because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he stepped down from heaven's throne, the greatest place of privilege. He stepped down from heaven's throne and he took on flesh. The infinite entered into the finite and then he went to the cross and died for undeserving people like us. All Nations Community Church, I've been asked, where are we going as a church when it comes to race and justice? What are we doing? Where are our, what is the direction of our church when it comes to politics and culture? Because people want to know, hey, Pastor Mike, are we going to, are we going to rep Black Lives Matter? Or Pastor Mike, are we going to be Republican and, and, and push for Supreme Court justices on the conservative end? And, and, and we're asking these questions, or I'm, and I'm fielding these questions, and I feel the back and forth and the tension and all of the issues, and I just want to riff Andrew Yang for a moment. I can tell you as our lead pastor, we are going neither left nor right. I want us to go Godward. I want us to go towards God. I want us to follow after Jesus Christ and then go to the places where he leads us. 
I want us to live under the authority and word of Jesus as citizens of his kingdom first. That's how I want our church members to live. Whether you are Republican or Democratic, whether you are rich or poor, regardless of your culture and your ethnicity, I want us as a family to be first citizens of Jesus' kingdom and then second citizens of this world. I want us to be Godward people. And I want us all to submit to the authority of Jesus' word. And so this is not punting on difficult issues and specific questions. I told our staff this week, if we go to the Bible and if we get our church to the Bible, we will know what to do. We will know what to do if we truly consider the whole counsel of God and not just picking parts and bits of the Bible that we like according to our preferences or if we stop playing games with the Bible and making it say something it's not saying because we want it to fit our culture and our lifestyle and our worldview. If we would just simply take God at his word, we will know what to do. We will be compelled to protect the image of God inside and outside the womb. We will be compelled to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. We will be compelled to define marriage, not as we prefer, not as our culture prefers, but as God defines it. Gender and sexuality in the same ways. We will be compelled to care for the poor, to care for creation, to protect the sojourner and the immigrant. Why? Because Israel was once sojourners and immigrants in exile. God says that so clearly. And so church, if we would just go to God and go to his word, we will know what to do and how to respond to the issues we are facing in our days. Church, what we can offer as the people of God is uniquely good. We can offer the world a beautiful and a compelling vision of life as we live it not under our authority, as we live it not under the authority of just mighty and influential men, but as we live it under the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus offers us a good life. He offers us a beautiful vision of what true justice, what true compassion, what true goodness looks like. Final statement for today. Jesus issues a warning of judgment to those who reject his authority. It's a weird way to close a sermon, but it's how Jesus ends his discussion. So I'm going to follow Jesus here. And he says this. If we refuse his authority in this life, we will come under it certainly in the next. If we refuse his authority in this life, we will certainly come under it in the next. This is what it means when we pray that Jesus will come to uh, judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. He will return to do that. Jesus as the cornerstone, he does two things. And it's only one of two things. He's either going to reconcile you as a repentant sinner to God and to his people or 
He's going to judge us. And as the cornerstone, anyone who falls on the stone will be broken. And anyone upon whom the stone falls on will be crushed. Brothers and sisters, how will you experience Jesus as the cornerstone of your life? Will it be as Savior or will it be as judge? And if you want to know the saving work, and if you want to experience the good and gracious authority of King Jesus in your life, get into his word. Get into his word. Take him at his word and begin to obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your text, your prophetic guidance in leading us to this parable today. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice, that you would give us hearts that are soft and teachable, hearts that can receive your love and grace. And you would give us eyes Eyes to see the world as it really is. Eyes to see the world and what it truly needs. And would you give us lips, lips that would proclaim your truth, your words of life, words that are unafraid to speak out in boldness, unafraid to speak out in truth. I pray for the unity of our church. God, would you allow our church to be a representation of many nations, of many people from different socioeconomic, from different political, from different cultural, from different preferential places. And would you gather us together as one family and as one people under one name, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we take you at your word, Help us to live in justice, in mercy, and in humility. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.